Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good evening. Really was a blessing all the music this evening and how it really uh, illustrates the truths that we're going to look at this evening from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. If you would turn there, please. Romans chapter 5, and the message this evening is the believer's deliverance in Christ, chapters 5 through 8, Romans 5 through 8. It's a lot of mature we're going to try to get through, but I trust it will be a blessing. Uh, one of my favorite portions of the Word of God uh, is this passage of Scripture. And um, the, um, so we'll begin here reading in uh, chapter 5, uh, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Dear Father, I pray now that as we consider the blessings that you give us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that those who do not know Christ would come to the conviction that it is a wonderful thing to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, to know your smile and your kindness to us, and to know the victory over sin and death. And I pray, Lord, that all of, those, all of us who are in Christ would appreciate what it means that we would realize we're not just forgiven, but we are accepted. We're not just um, pardoned, but we are empowered to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you. Help us to rejoice in the victory that you have for us in Jesus Christ through the gospel. For we pray in his name. Amen. The, um, uh, this, this passage of scripture, in fact, this verse for Romans 5.1 is one of my favorite verses in the entire scripture. And um, I'm not going to give you a whole exposition of any part of this text uh, because there's just three chapters to cover and a very short period of time to do it in. But I would like just to make a comment here. I really think that if you're going to meditate on anything in these three chapters of Romans, I would encourage you to meditate on verse 1 because it is the linchpin, the foundation. It's the anchor uh, that holds together the entire portion, this entire portion of the book. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's such an encouragement to know that. And when we meditate on what it means to have peace with God, in fact, I think what we see here in these passages, in, this, in these chapters, is what it means have peace with God. What's involved uh, in that? And it's such an encouragement and a blessing. Uh, and so as we go through this, I hope that we can at least bring that out a little bit as we are going through looking at the structure of this uh, portion of the book. Well, where are we in the outline of Romans? Um, well, so far, we started out with part one, which was the uh, introduction of Paul's ministry of the gospel to the believers. And we saw there that it's important for believers to understand the gospel. It's important for us to understand the gospel so we can communicate it, but it's also important for us to understand it so we can live it out. Because the gospel is really the foundation of everything that we have in the Christian life. 
as we're going to see in the portion of Scripture we're dealing with, uh, this section of, of Romans, Romans 5-8, through 8, is often described as the portion on sanctification. But I think that it's a mistake to, to, to really say that this is, uh, this is a manual on sanctification. I think when people try to do that, they end up making some mistakes because the Bible has a lot of other things to say about sanctification. But I would say this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, as presented by the Apostle Paul, is the foundation of sanctification. Without this foundation, you cannot build a solid life of growth and increase in holiness in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of it as, I know in some parts of the world, they will build one story, uh, they, they build with block or with concrete particularly, and then they will oftentimes pour a, pour a concrete ceiling on that, and they will leave, the, the fa- up along the walls, they will leave the rebar sticking up so that you can tie in the second story. And I think that there's a sense in which that's what Paul has done here. He has, he has laid out the foundation and then he has established the key, the, the key bindings that, are going to, that we're going to tie our lives into as we look at other portions of Scripture and see how we can grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was Paul's ministry to the, uh, to the believers. And then we saw uh, in the second part of the outline that the gospel reveals the only way to be right with a righteous God. The righteous God condemns sin, but the righteous God also justifies sinners. And how can that be? And the gospel is the only explanation for how God can justify unrighteous people. And so that is, of course, the foundation of everything we have in the Christian life. And then number three, and this is the message, this is the message for this evening, the, the three chapters, chapter 5 verse, uh, through chapter 8. The gospel secures to us all the blessings of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And so... What we have here then is, a, is chapters about the blessings, what it means to be blessed in Christ, what are the implications of being justified by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to go back and look at verses uh, 1 through 5 because I really believe that verses 1 through 5, in a sense, form an introduction to the entire section of this book, uh, to uh, all this chapter th- uh, 5 through 8. And so I want us to look at this, and I've highlighted some portions because I want to emphasize something here. The portions I have in yellow are in the perfect tense. That means there are things that have already happened, but that they have ongoing consequences. They're completed things in the past, but that they, have, they continue to have an effect to the present. Then the portions in blue I have, those are, those are present tense. That means that's something that's ongoing. That's something that uh, Paul is talking about is happening now. And notice uh, what you have here. First of all, therefore, having been justified by faith, or really it could even be causal, because we've been justified by faith. Right? Because we have already been justified by faith. It's interesting, when Paul prays for believers, he prays lots of things for them, but he doesn't ever pray that they would be justified. Right? In, the, in this sense, in the forensic sense, because that's already happened. You don't need to pray for something that God's already done. You can thank him for it, right? So having been justified by faith, or because we've been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God. Now, as I mentioned before, that is just an amazing concept. You can go through and study peace, study from the Old Testament context, study from the New Testament context. It's just really incredible. It's not just the absence of conflict. Now, that is a, a very important part of it. It is, there is an absence of conflict. God's not angry at us anymore, and that's really a good thing, isn't it? to know that God's not angry at us anymore. His wrath has been satisfied 
on the cross of Jesus Christ. But being at peace with somebody is a lot more than that, right? You can, you can imagine a couple is sitting there at the breakfast table and, and, and one is uh, eating the eggs and toast and the other is uh, engaged in reading something on the phone. And they're not fighting, but you know that they're not at what? Peace, right? They, they, there's not that unity or that oneness or that fellowship. There is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that we enjoy constantly. Uh, we live under the smile of our Heavenly Father. Can I put it that way? He has not just forgiven us and said, okay, now I've forgiven you. Go away. You bother me. Right? He has said, now I have a relationship with you. I am your Heavenly Father. You know, I love that song, In Shady Green Pastures So Rich and So Sweet, God Leads His Dear Children Along. And the one word that always gets me is the word dear. We're His dear children. Right? I love, I love it when we have the young people uh, uh, worship the Lord in, and, and they've been practicing their instruments or they've been singing and they worship the Lord that way. And I think that's the way God looks at us when we're serving Him too, like His little children. Because after all, you know, we're, you know, compared to the way we could be doing it, right? We're like, we're like little children. But God, but we're not this, you know, we're encouraged by our children, right? And by our grandchildren when they're doing things to serve the Lord. We're not hypercritical of them. And I really believe that that's the way God views us as well as his dear children. Okay, and then it says, through whom we have access. It's interesting, that is in the perfect tense too. We have obtained access or entrance. It's almost like the idea you have been given a, um, a pass, <laughs> right? You've been given a letter of invitation. You know, if I wanted to go to some important place, like let's say I wanted to go to the White House and not just take the tour, which you probably have to sign up for anyway, but I wanted to go into the, you know, the business part of the White House and I wanted to talk to the president. Well, you just don't go do that. You have to be what? Invited. You have to get an invitation. But we have been given an invitation. We have obtained access into the throne room of God. And, it, and it, again, we have obtained access by faith into this grace, meaning we are now under a system of grace, and, and Paul's going to emphasize that as opposed to a system of law. And we stand... That's in the present tense. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. That's something that's ongoing. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. Understood, produces. And character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint. Our hope, which is a, a, a certain expectation, will not be disappointed. Why not? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now that was given is still a past tense, not a perfect tense. But the idea is that God has given us his Holy Spirit and he has poured out in our hearts his love by his Holy Spirit. These are things that we already have. So we have been justified, we have been given access, and we have had the Holy Spirit pour out the love of God in our hearts. Those are accomplished facts. I don't have to beg God to do those things. Now I may not be experiencing them the way I would like to, but that doesn't mean I don't have them, right? These are things that God has done already in our lives. So this is a really powerful point. Now I want to get into how does this work out in these chapters. And this has been something I really struggled with as I was preparing for the message because I'm trying to see, okay, how does this peace of God, how does Paul develop it as we go through these chapters? And it's interesting to me. So I, I thought, well, let's look at some word frequency. So we've got words here, some key words. These are not like particles or prepositions or, or words uh, like 
uh, articles like the or an or something like that. These are in fact what we call substantive word groups that are very common in the book. So the, wor the word groups for to sin, either the verb or the noun, or at some form of that root, 49 times. Die or death, 43 times. Law, 38 times. God, 36 times. Life or live, 27 times. Spirit, 24 times. And righteous or justify, that root, 22 times. Now, as we look at this, we have to do a little bit of thinking, okay, how, do these, how, do these, how are these distributed throughout the material? Well, the first point is that when we look, at, we look at God there, of course God is prominent in this section of the book because God is central to the whole Bible and God is central to the whole book of Romans. And so, of course, the book is about God and this section is about God. But we're trying to find out, well, what about God or what about God's gospel is being emphasized in these chapters? So then we can look at some others of these. Well, law occurs 38 times, but 23 of those are just in chapter 7. So law is prominent in this book, in this, this section, but it's not spread out very evenly. It is dealt with as a major subject of one of the sections. The same is true with spirit. It occurs, I think, 21 of the 24 times it occurs in chapter 8. So it is, uh, the Holy Spirit is the key subject of chapter 8, but I wouldn't necessarily say it runs as a main theme throughout all of these chapters. Well, that leaves four of them. And so what are those four? Well, the four are sin, die and death, live and life, and righteous and justified. Do you notice anything about those? How you might group them? Well, you have sin, right? You have sin and you have righteousness. So you have opposites, right? So you have sin and then you have righteous. Those are opposites. And, of course, it's interesting, sin is mentioned more frequently. Then you have death and dying 43 times, and life and living 27 times. And again, those are, those are, those are opposites. And so I think we, we can argue is that the way Paul presents peace with God is, in a sense, in a negative kind of an argument. He's saying, these are things God has delivered us from, and things God has delivered us unto. So for that reason, I think we can look and see as we go to Romans 1.16, remember our theme verse for the whole book, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Deliverance, right? To salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So it's, it's for deliverance. Salvation means deliverance. And so, really, if you, if you look at that and put all that together, I think you can conclude that, that uh, we struggle as Christians because we often feel defeated in the Christian life. Believers, though we know we've been forgiven, often feel defeated. But, and this is what we learn from looking at the section, however, we can rejoice because gospel salvation includes deliverance from sin and death. And I really believe if you look at the overall structure of, the, of those uh, sections of the book, you'll see that uh, God is showing all the ways in which we are delivered from sin and death by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is truly the power of God for salvation. So the first thing we see is in chapter 5 or 6 through verse 21, and that is through the sacrifice of Christ, we are delivered from the condemnation of sin and death. Through the sacrifice of Christ, we are delivered from the condemnation of sin and death. Now, there's a whole section there, but I do want us to, I'm going to try to give you the outline a little bit, and we'll look at some representative passages or representative verses. 
Okay, the first point there is that Christ's loving sacrifice for us guarantees our salvation. That's chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. The loving sacrifice of Christ guarantees our salvation. And you see that there in some key verses here. I think key verses in this section are chapter 5, verse 8 through verse 9. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And as you go through that, this is sort of the the nub or the core of the argument that Paul's making in this section, which is that it's an amazing thing that Christ should die, but it's even more amazing that he should die for God's enemies, for sinners, for people who are completely undeserving and who are completely alienated from God and have no claim whatsoever on the mercy of God, and yet Christ died for us, being in that condition Uh, us being in that condition, Christ died for us, and if he died for us, and now we are reconciled to him, and we're justified in his, uh, uh, by his uh, death, by his uh, uh, sacrifice for us, if we're now justified, declared righteous, and we are okay with God, why would we not be saved from wrath? See, and so notice the key phrase there, much more than having been justified by his blood, when we were enemies, We shall be saved from wrath through him now that we are in his uh, good favor. So through the sacrifice, the love of God is manifest or demonstrated in that Christ died for us. And then that being the case, we know there is no wrath. There is therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I think we know that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been in a Bible preaching church, I think you know that. Now, there are many people that struggle with that, right? There's people that struggle with fear fear of losing their salvation. People fear that, okay, God has forgiven me, but what if I sin after my salvation? You know, uh, will he forgive me again? And lots of believers struggle with that. But I think even in a church like this, we struggle with uh, really, really believing all the time that our favor with God always rests in Jesus Christ. Because we get kind of, when we do something well, we feel good and we feel therefore secure. And therefore, when we're not doing well, you know, that creates an insecurity, doesn't it? Because now I'm not so sure how God feels about me now that I didn't have my devotions or now that I didn't witness when I had an opportunity to witness. And of course, God disciplines his children, but he does that in love, right? He does that in love. We never force, we never can, we never can forsake, I mean, we never can forfeit the love of God if we're truly born again people. And it's interesting, when Paul gets to chapter six, he's going to refuse to budge on that even an inch. Okay, as much as it causes him problems in his debates with people, he's not going to budge on the point that we are under grace, we're not under law. And that's going to be extremely important when we get to that part. But God demonstrates his love in that Christ died for us, and therefore we can be confident that we are saved from wrath. Then you have an interesting section here, 512 through 21, where, where Paul is using the, the example of Adam or the fact of Adam and that his, that his sin, that his disobedience brought death upon the human race and therefore said in a like manner the obedient act of Christ, and he's talking now about the act of Christ, I believe, on, in, in going to the cross, his act of obedience or his act of righteousness renders many righteous or justifies many, declares many righteous. 
And you know, it's an interesting section here, and, I, and we don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but people struggle with this idea of, well, how can people be held accountable for Adam's sin? It's interesting. Paul never tries to prove that. He assumes that it's true. And why would he assume it's true? Well, it's obvious. Everyone dies. <laughs> right? If we were not all under the condemnation of Adam, why, are we all, why do we all die? If, in other words, it's, it's, to him, it's like, well, this is clear that we are under this condemnation. Uh, Adam dies, God's, and God said, you will die. And guess what? All of Adam's progeny die. So you might not like it. You might say, well, I don't really think it makes a lot of sense to me. But the bottom line is you can't deny the reality of death. And so, and so his point, though, is because that is true and obviously true, the, the inverse can be true. That is that Christ can, can commit a righteous act and can die in my place and many can be made righteous. So he's making the argument. Now, by the way, if you deny the imputation of, sin, of Adam's sin, how do you accept the imputation of Christ's sin for us? See, because they're, they're, they're made on the same, on the same basis. So his point is that Christ's righteous sacrifice for us guarantees our salvation and the salvation of all who are in Christ. So that's what's going on, I believe, in the rest of this chapter, chapter 5, uh, verses, tw uh, verses uh, 6 through uh, 21. So as Paul gets down to, toward the end of this chapter, he points out, he just makes a point about the law. And I think the, the point he makes is very important. He says that he says there was death in the world before the law was given. But the law entered, and he said that sin may abound. And I think what he's, he's going to demonstrate in chapter 7, uh, in part, what he means by that. But the law entered as a way of really exposing sin for what it is. By the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. He's already, he has already uh, asserted that in chapter 3, and he's going to come back to that in chapter 7. The law exposes sin, and that's why God gave the law, was to expose sin, so that we could be saved through Jesus Christ. And so he says now, we are therefore, where sin did abound under the law, what did even more abound? Grace. Because the more sin, the more God's forgiven, and therefore the more he demonstrates his grace. And that really moves us into chapter 6, which is the chapter 6 and 7 are the second part of this book. And, and it's often argued that this is a parenthesis, that is, that, that Paul is saying, now I'm going to deal with an objection that people make to my preaching. And this is true, he is dealing with an objection people make to his preaching. Two objections, in fact. But, but I do think he, it makes a positive point, though. It's not just a parenthesis. It actually advances his argument. And so let's see how that works together with this. So... I'm sorry, let me, let me get to this key verse first, though. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification to life. So that's what we were saying about how the, the righteousness of Christ, then, is put onto our account, the account of many. But then moving on to chapter 6 and 7, we have what I believe we could call through our, the statement that through our union with Christ, we are delivered from the dominion of sin and death. So it is through the sacrifice of Christ, we are delivered through the, from the condemnation of sin and death. 
but it is our union with Christ whereby we are delivered from the dominion or the rule or the authority of sin and death in our life. And he deals with this through the objection, as you can see at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That was an accusation people had made that he was preaching essentially license. You can live however you want to and God will forgive you. In fact, God will be happy if you sin more because the more you sin, then the more, uh, the more he, can, he can show his grace. And they said, that's a ridiculous ethical position. Therefore, your gospel must be false, Paul. And Paul says, you don't understand. We have been delivered through our union with Christ. We have been delivered from the authority of sin. Sin has no more right to control you. Okay, its power or dominion has been broken. Um, the first point we see here is that, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, and all the way to verse 23, we are free from sin to serve God in righteousness. Why is that? Is it, we can put it this way, we are under new management. <laughs> God has put us under new management. You've ever go to, you know, you get one of those hotel reviews, right? And it gets really lousy hotel reviews. And then... You know, um, later on you find out that they put the hotel under new management. Well, sometimes it works the other way, right? It gets great reviews and now it's under new management and it's lousy, right? But the point is when something goes under new management, you expect things to change. In fact, when they say under new management, that's what they're trying to express to you, that this is going to be new. This is going to be innovative. Uh, we're going to correct the difficulties and problems. And Paul is making it very plain that we are under new management as we have... Um, uh, as we have trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, this is a wonderfully intricate argument, and we don't have a lot of time to go through it, but let me just kind of walk you through it just a little bit, or maybe we could, like, kind of jog through it, okay? Let's jog through this argument. His first point is this. He's, he's saying, look, you are dead to sin. How can you live in something if you're dead to it? And the answer is, obviously, you can't. Now, why are we dead to sin? And this is his point. If you are saved by Jesus Christ... Right? And when, you've tried, when, he says, when he says in, um, in verse 3, Or do you not know as many as, as have been, were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Um, I really believe, you study that out, you'll find that he's really talking there about spiritual baptism. That is, we were, we were identified with Christ in salvation. He's not talking about water baptism. If water baptism is in view there, it is as a picture of what's happened. Okay? Because we were identified with Christ, we were publicly, officially identified with Christ in our baptism, but that is a symbolic identification. We've been truly identified with Christ when we trusted in Christ. And if you think about it, that's the only way his righteousness can apply to me. If I am not identified with him legally, then I can't get the benefit of his righteousness. One person, how can one person die for another unless they are legally joined together? And so he's saying, look, you have been identified with Christ, but if you've been identified with Christ, you've been identified with his death. That means when he died, you died. Not only that, when you identified with his death, you've been identified with his resurrection. So when he rose, you rose. So as far as God's concerned, you died and rose again when Christ died and rose again. That's the way God sees it. That's the way it is officially and legally. And because of that, you are now dead to sin. <laughs> and you are alive unto righteousness. And that's essentially his argument. Therefore, you are to consider yourself dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. And therefore, you are to yield your members not as instruments of sin to serve sin, but as instruments of righteousness to serve God. Why? Because you died to that and now you're alive to that. 
He's not really talking so much about how we feel. He's talking about what is true in reality. And therefore, if you think about it, if you are dead to something, does God want you in it? And if you're alive to something, does God want you involved in it? And the answer, of course, is no and yes. So therefore, it does not glorify God. The gospel in no way condones or encourages us to be in sin. In fact, it gives us the only way to really understand how we can live in a victorious way. But so the first point is, it, we, are, and we see from chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 23, that we are under new management, and therefore we need to think that way. Consider yourself dead indeed unto sin. But then he makes another point, and this is in chapter 7, okay, another powerful and interesting uh, chapter. We are free from the law to serve God in the Spirit. We are in a new marriage. Now, this is interesting because now he goes on and uses the illustration of marriage to demonstrate how our relationship to sin has changed. And that's because our freedom of our freedom from the law. He's already sort of hinted at this because he says um, uh, in verse 14 of chapter 6, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you shall not have rulership over you. Why not? Because you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul, in Paul's mind, the law and sin are very tightly connected together. The purpose God had for giving the law was because of sin. Had there, there, there would have been no law if there had not been sin. And God and, and law binds me to my sin or judges me for my sin. And so Paul is going to deal with the relationship between sin and the law. But Paul's saying, first of all, you have to be under grace and not under law if you're going to be delivered from sin. And so how is he going to make this argument? Well, he starts out by using the illustration of marriage in chapter 7. He says, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. And we know that until death do you part. And so we learned this morning that God takes marriage very seriously and he views it as a lifetime commitment. But death breaks marriage. Okay, we saw that this morning. Boaz was free to marry Ruth because Ruth's husband had died. And therefore that marriage is no longer and it's not a breaking of the law. That's what the law says. The law provides that. And so his point is that in the same way, when we died with Christ, we died to the law too. We didn't just die to sin. We died to the law. That is, the law considered in its condemnatory aspects. So that, he, and he goes on and stretches out this illustration. And he says, he says in verse um, uh, for therefore my brethren you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ how are we dead to the law through the body of Christ when Christ died in his physical body right when he died on the cross who died with him we did and when we died with him our relationship to the law changed we were under the condemnation of the law we are no longer under the condemnation of the law so in that sense we're not under law now I do need to make an emphasis here Paul is talking about one aspect of the work of the law he's not saying that the law is irrelevant to the Christian that the law is not beneficial to the Christian he is not dealing with that question he is dealing with some other questions that we're going to have to address but the first one is I am not under the law as a system of obtaining God's favor 
Now, now, he has already pointed out that nobody can really obtain God's favor under the law anyway. Right? It's a futile act. Okay, but we are now free from the law. And because we're free from the law, we are free then to be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead. So you have the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. We died with Christ. We died to the law. We're raised and we're now united with Christ. And in our union with Christ, we are able to bear fruit unto God. We're able to bear spiritual fruit. We're able to have a real change of life. Now, this is really important. Paul is not saying this is like, you know, I hope this is true for you, or this had better be true for you, or you better make sure it's true for you. He's saying this is true for you <laughs> if you're a Christian, which is why the, 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 the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, through justification, is so much tied to the gospel of the idea of regeneration. Right? You can't be justified without being born again. Those, are, those go together. They're two sides of the same coin. We have been raised with Christ. And if we've been raised with Christ, we now have a spiritual life and we can bear fruit for God. So that's the idea. Now, chapter 7 is difficult in a number of ways because Paul is now answering a, another objection. And he, he, he is trying to answer the objection that people make that you, Paul, you denigrate the law. The law was given by God, and you treat it like it's bad. You don't like the law, Paul. And Paul is saying, no, you don't understand. You, you are misunderstanding how the law functions. You're misunderstanding how the law functions. And so chapter 7 is a difficult chapter for a number of reasons. But the first point in chapter 7 is the first thing that the law does. Paul is showing why the law is good. Okay? That's his point here. He says, for example, he says here in, um, um, in verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he says, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. So his first point is, the law showed me my sin. The law is good because it shows us our sin. And one example he gives is how when you are, have a rebellious heart, how the law makes you sin even more. Right? You ever heard this? How do you get kids to put beans in their ears? Tell them not to. You know, the whole thing with reverse psychology, right? Don't use reverse psychology on children or other people for that matter. Because reverse psychology appeals to people's rebellious nature. Right? In other words, Paul's point is that when the commandment came, I wanted to do the bad thing more than I wanted to do it before. So he says, I was alive without the law once. I think what he's saying is, look, I was, I, I was oblivious to my sin until the law came. And so sin, which was dormant in me, revived, right? It was hibernating. It wasn't expressing itself. It was down there sleeping there. But as soon as the commandment came, it gave an occasion. So the first point is that, 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 because, uh, that sinful people sin more because they're told what's right. And I think you can see examples even in your own life where you bristle at being told what to do, even if the thing being told to you is correct. Okay, the second point then is he goes on to say that when he, uh, even when he uh, wants to do what the law tells him to do, he finds that he can't do it. So then we have in verse 13... Has that which is good, that is the law, become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. And then you have a whole passage where Paul says, 
what Paul says basically, I, the law is spiritual, I'm carnal, I'm sold under sin, and I can't, I, I, I have a law in my mind, I want to do right, I love the law with my mind, but I can't seem to do it. And there's a great big debate over exactly who the I is there. Is this someone, is this someone Paul is describing who, who is a Christian? who is in a healthy condition and just can't seem to get victory over sin? Is it a Christian who is uh, in the flesh, walking in the flesh and not in the spirit? Um, or is he a, a, an unsaved person who has had his conscience awakened and is trying to reform himself? Okay, well, we obviously don't have time to get into that whole debate. But I, before we try to answer a subsidiary question about the text, I think we need to answer what the point of the text is first. Right. If we understand what the point of the text is, then we can maybe agree to disagree on some of the other issues that are related to the text. And the point of the text is that the law is good because the law exposes sin for what it is. I already showed you that the law showed how rebellious sin is. It shows the existence of sin in our lives when the commandment comes. But it also shows how sin is entrenched. So that even if I want to change, I can't change in and of myself. Now, that's true of lost people. Have you ever run across lost people and they start to get convicted of their sin? They decide to start going to church and they decide to start being nice to their spouse and they decide to start, you know, giving. And you, you find they're trying to reform their lives. Well, Paul's point is that the, if you really understand the law, you don't, you don't hang on to that for very long. That becomes extremely frustrating. Because you find that there is a part of you, there is something deep-seated down in your being, he calls it the flesh, or, or a principle operating in your life that is sabotaging you. Now, I personally believe that if you're a Christian and you try to be righteous in your own strength, that's what you're going to experience. You'll experience the same thing because we can't be righteous in our own strength either. either. Paul's going to tell us in chapter 8 how God gives us victory over sin. It's by the power of the Spirit. It's not by our own power. But the point is, the law is good, but the law is limited. It can only do certain things. Um, what are the limitations of the law? Well, I think if you use this illustration, the law is like a reconnaissance aircraft. Okay, a reconnaissance aircraft. The a reconnaissance aircraft can fly over the target and it draws enemy fire. <laughs> okay, that's the first part of chapter 7. When the commandment comes, the rebellious heart starts shooting at the commandment and resisting the commandment. Okay, but then also the, the reconnaissance aircraft is equipped with cameras that can look down and find out where all the enemy, uh, the disposition of all the enemy forces. But the, it has no weapons to dislodge the enemy from its fortifications. And in the same way, the law can diagnose our sin and can show us how bad our sin is and how we can't solve our sin ourselves, but it does not have the ability to solve the problem of our sin or to get rid of our sin. Therefore, I have to be free of the law so that Christ in me is the power to... And so, uh, to, to, to resolve sin. And so, regardless of how you look at chapter 7, and even though, however frustrating that might appear to be, there is really hope there. Because what it says is, there is a way, and the right way to respond to the law is what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the, this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The point of the law is to drive people to Christ. It's supposed to drive them to Christ in salvation, and when we forget to go to Christ, then our failures, I think, often drive us to Christ 
in confidence and faith. It's not saying that we need to live in frustration, but it's saying is we can't do it on our own. I do think that that is a legitimate application for the life of the believer. The point is that Christ is the answer, not my own effort. Now, does that mean we don't work? Of course we work. Paul makes it very plain. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We're to yield our members. He's going to go on in chapter 8 and say that we need to, uh, we need to not live in the flesh. We need to live in the spirit. And so, and there are many, many other passages in the Bible which teach that, that our participation in the sanctification process requires effort. But the point is the power doesn't come from me. The power comes from God through his spirit. And that's really where we get to the next part. Because through the Spirit of Christ, we are delivered from the oppression of sin and death. And I really struggled to try to find, to try to find what was the best word to describe what is happening in this verse. And I really do think it is the idea of oppression. Because Christians still have indwelling sin. And Christians still die physically. And Christians still suffer. So deliverance from these things is not deliverance from problems. It is overcoming in the problems. In other words, sin and death have lost the ability to oppress me spiritually. Right? I can walk in victory in spite of the circumstances that I'm facing. And I really believe that that's what Paul is saying in this section. So through the Spirit of Christ, we are delivered from the oppression of sin and death... First of all, through the indwelling spirit, we can experience victory over indwelling sin. <laughs> okay, sin is indwelling. Guess what? Who else is indwelling? The spirit of Christ is indwelling. And Paul makes it very plain that if you don't have the spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to Christ. And when the spirit of Christ is in you, guess who's in you? Christ is in you. So the union I have with Christ is not just legal, it is actual and spiritual. I have an actual spiritual union with Christ, and that union with Christ changes the way I interact with everything in this world. Things that would have been considered bad are now things that God is using for my good. So the first point is that I can have victory over sin, even though I could not, through my own effort under the law, have victory over sin. So I think the key verses here are chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Uh, I'm sorry, 2 through 4. Um, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That is, the principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, so the law couldn't do something. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... (laughs) Right? The law required me to obey it. <laughs> so the weakness was not in the law. The weakness was in, in me. It was in the execution. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is that it was relying on a slender reed for its execution. It was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice he didn't come in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Human flesh, but without sin. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And I really think the point there is that we who are Christians are in our lives walking in the Spirit. That's our, that's our natural condition. Now, that doesn't mean we always do that. It doesn't mean we don't need to be encouraged to do that. But what it does mean is that we have the Spirit. <laughs> we are led of the Spirit. We're the children of God. The Spirit is in there working in my life, Okay doesn't mean that I always listen. But it does mean that I have that resource and that guidance. 
And so the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. So I am not under the law as a, as a system of acceptance with God, but I'm able to fulfill its righteous requirements by walking in the Spirit. So Paul's saying, I'm not against the law, I'm for the law. In fact, I'm for the only way you can really in the Spirit fulfill the law. And that is through walking in the Holy, in the Holy Spirit. And so the indwelling Spirit gives, can give us victory over indwelling sin. And we have that promise of victory. And I, I really, that's really important. Uh, I, I want to emphasize the fact that sometimes because we say nobody's perfect and because I have a sin nature, that we sort of like give up. But there's nothing in this passage that tells us we should just give up and throw in the towel. Because we have the resources and we, we have the ability to get victory. And then also through the intervening spirit, we have confidence in victory amid suffering and death. We are the sons of God, therefore we are to, we're going to be glorified one day. The whole creation is waiting for that. God is using all these things for our good. The Holy Spirit intervenes. He tells me I'm a child of God. He tells you you're a child of God. He also intercedes with, the, with God for us. So we don't know how to pray, but he intercedes with God. So we have this wonderful resource in the Holy Spirit. And what that means is we can have victory in whatever circumstances that we're in. Key verses here, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the... I'm sorry, that's the wrong one. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So, so the Spirit prays for us according to God's will for us. All right? You may not know God's will, but if you pray with a sincere heart, his spirit will pray according to the will of God for you. And what does that mean? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose or his will. So the Holy Spirit empowers me to live according to the will and purpose of God, and therefore God in his providence works all things out for our good. So what's the conclusion? Well, the conclusion is that we're more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means to have peace with God. I think of Charles Wesley's song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, and the stanza that goes, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. He breaks the power of sin, not just the con condemnation of sin, but he breaks its power in my life, and he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Application. Have you been justified by faith in Christ? Have you been truly justified by faith in Christ? Are you believing in the Lord Jesus? None of this stuff applies to a person who's not in Christ. You have to be united to Christ for any of this to be true. If so, do you consider yourself dead to sin? And are you yielding yourself to serve God? And are you walking in the Spirit and rejoicing in the work that God is doing and will do in your life?